From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? Fantastic. <laughs> Just everything's going great. Definitely nothing going wrong with my return home. Yeah. Yeah, so you've, you've learned from listening to the podcast clearly not to bring your personal issues to work. That's your own stuff, That's right? That's it, right, yeah. yeah. And as your employer, yeah, and as your employer I should not make any accommodations. Yeah, just, just shut the hell up, Joel. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear about that. Yeah, Joel's still dealing with insurers, builders, movers. Yep. So hopefully next week we get a lot brighter, uh, Joel. I don't know, man. I think, you know, the, the dark, gloomy pessimist is uh, probably pretty entertaining for everybody who's not living it. Yeah, it's a, probably a, a good kind of um, change up as well because I'm the eternal optimist. So well, it's that's, probably... that's it. You're like violently optimistic. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think we probably balance each other out fairly well. I think you like throwing violently in front of a lot of uh, terms. <laughs> what does that say about me, Jason? <laughs> I'm not that sort of psychologist. We'll have to get a clean psych on at some point to oh, work Lord. that one out. <laughs> All right. Well, look, um, I'd love to introduce our guest for today. Uh, she's someone I hold in such high esteem. In my opinion, she's one of the sharpest minds internationally on the topic of psychological health and safety and is my go-to person to geek out on the subject. We previously worked together on the board of the Sleep Health Foundation, uh, where she's outlasted my tenure and still going strong. But her paid position is Director of Health and Safety and Workers' Compensation Policy at the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer Lowe. Hi, Jason. Hi, Joelle. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're a big get, Jen. Um, when Joel said, you know, who are some of the people that you're thinking about having on the show? I said, you know, Barack Obama, um, you know, um, <laughs> Hillary Clinton, I don't know, Jacinda Ardern. No, nah, I, I want Jennifer Lowe first, but it's actually taken us, I think this is the 17th episode that we've recorded. It's taken that long to get you on board. You're a very busy lady. And so we really appreciate you putting aside some time to, uh, to chat with us today. I think it's a worthwhile cause and a really great podcast. So happy to be here. Awesome. All right, Jen, before we get into any anything too serious, what are your favourite podcasts? Uh, yes. So I did double check what I've been listening to. Um, might surprise some people. Joe Rogan is one of my favourites, um, particularly the Matt Walker episode, which probably doesn't surprise anyone, which is on sleep. Um, really interesting interviews that he does with a range of various people from comedy to social psychology to sleep, um, nutrition, really interesting. And then Holly Ransom, Coffee Pods, um, more business orientated, but some really good snippets of information there. Cool. All right. That um, Anything for entertainment? Not podcast wise. No. Joe Rogan could be pretty entertaining. Like, well, yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a sort of crossover yeah. Um, infotainment. Yeah. 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 Particularly <laughs> when he gets into heated debates with some of the guests on the show. Like, that can be entertaining. That's always entertaining, listening to people argue when you're not involved in it. Yeah. 
<laughs> Again, there's me just being dark and weird. So, yeah, fantastic. <laughs> all right, Jen, uh, tell us all about your professional career. Yeah, I had a bit of a mixed career. So I started obviously in psychology um, at university and I did my honours thesis on risk perception and ecstasy use in white collar workers, which led me down the drug and alcohol academic road. Um, and I worked for Endry for a while, um, looking at alcohol and cat predominantly, um, which is a shrub that grows in suburbia, um, which can be chewed and give you speed-like or you know, significant coffee-like properties. Um, not that I'm encouraging anyone to try it, but um, really interesting drug. So I got into this, this concept of risk and perception and objective versus subjective. And that had led me to oil and gas um, and human factors. So that's where I really started um, really interesting work on cultural change, understanding the why, um, started to get a bit more involved in safety. And then over time, I've added a bit of information about workers' comms. So I had some training there, got to know HR, um, change management, governance, and a few other areas, um, and then ended up at Aki, where I get to combine, I guess, all of the skill sets in a really nice, um, broad uh, policy role. Nice. That's um, a, a good range of um, variation, I think, in in a, in a career. So it uh, gets you to a position where you can be quite balanced and and have some good knowledge about what you're what you're talking about across um, across a number of different disciplines. So um, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, a bit generalist, not so much specialist um, compared to some of the other people you've had on the show. Yeah, yep. No, it's um, I think good good for us to have a bit of that variety as well. Um, people who can really talk to a particular topic and people who can talk more broadly. Um, yeah, so- yeah. I'm definitely a better person than I though, Jennifer. Doing all that consultation work and work by committee, and you know, having to work on high level policy and, and that sort of thing. No, I couldn't do that. So thanks for taking that bullet for us. So. Anytime. <laughs> um, so tell us about your role at the chamber. Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting role for me. I love it. Um, I never thought I'd go into policy and advocacy, um, but really fascinating. And like I said, this, the scope and breadth of the work I do keeps it quite interesting. So in terms of Aki, we're a membership organisation representing business um, to government, predominantly small business. And we have over 80 industry associations that we represent. So, so anything from the plumbers to the builders to med tech, pharmaceutical companies, um, we cover really a, a diverse range of memberships who are in turn representing their predominantly small employers. Um, I work specifically in the work health safety workers comp space, but that touches from anything to do with diving, chemicals, um, through to mental health and psychological safety, um, through to workers' comp, and at the moment also COVID, <laughs> and particularly you know COVID-safe behaviours and practices and the vaccine rollout. So quite diverse. As Jason mentioned, um, it is work by committee, which is different to when I was previously a consultant, and it was that one-on-one engagement with a single business. Um, but I really like 
the committee work because again it you get to explore all these different ideas um, the information and the knowledge all the different committee members representing these different sectors bring to the table really allows for some interesting discussions and debates and then I take that to various government committees and bodies and, and represent those views. Yeah, no, uh, like I said, uh, it's not something that I would ever choose to do. So I'm glad there are people like you, Jen, that are really interested in trying to collaborate, um, take on people's opinions, and then obviously advocate um, at the highest levels uh, for them. Now, um, recently, we've, we've heard from uh, Ian Firth uh, in relation to the development of the New South Wales uh, Draft Code of Practice for Psychological Health, and Carla Kepanekia also discussed the work on the International ISO Standard for Psychological Health and Safety at Work. Um, are these projects that Aki's involved in? Yeah, so it, really glad um, to hear from both Carlo and Ian, um, really interesting areas. Aki's involved with those two projects in quite different ways. So um, probably starting with standards is a little bit easier. So we are um, a body on Standards Australia and that particular committee, I'm the committee representative on, so SF001, if we want to get technical. Um, and, and Carlo's obviously on that committee as well. And that standard um, is causing, I guess, some controversy for, for my members because, again, we represent small business and we're just finding, because it's an international standard, there are a lot of terms that don't resonate well um, with small business employers and owners. Um, and so trying to add value to that international standard and make it relevant to them is proving quite tricky. So really, we've... I guess, put forward that it's more relevant to the larger corporates and that they'll get that value. And I think I heard you mention it previously, if they are operating internationally to have those systems aligned, to have the similar language, that mm. will be particularly useful. Um, and what we're looking at then is, do we in Australia adopt that international standard as is, or do we look to modify it and to try to tweak um, or provide, I guess, additional context um, to some of those terms to make it a bit more relevant, and then how relevant will it still be? So that's a, an ongoing discussion that we're having. Um, um, that's it. Just just to stop you on that one, that's that's interesting, right? Because we did pick up forty five thousand and one as it was, right? We made no changes and turned it into an Australian New Zealand standard, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but you're saying there may be, you know, more need to modify forty five thousand and three once it's published. We also thought um, that the the original standard 45001 needed further modification, but the modification process here is quite complex. Um, it's not as straightforward as a simple note saying top management, for instance, doesn't equal PCBU in our yeah. legislative framework. Um, and so we, we had a lot of debate as to the value of, should we modify it then it would probably be significantly modified and then we wouldn't get that value for the bigger corporates trying to have that consistency. Um, so at the end of the day, we ended up in this compromise position where we're looking to develop a small business handbook and that's underway at the moment and that's 45,002, getting all my okay. numbers yep. mixed around because um, they did it in a bit of a weird order. Um, so, yeah, we're looking at that small business handbook as trying to bridge that gap and address those issues. 
Yeah, that probably um, takes on board Sapna's feedback as well about how they found with the national standard, there still needed to be a company guide uh, on how do you actually use the standard practically, um, particularly for smaller businesses who don't have the internal resources um, to do that. And she, I think, was advocating for an addendum uh, to the standard that would have like the handbook, but having a separate standard, I guess that is more uh, practical for small businesses, probably wouldn't be a bad way to go. Yeah, the addendum can also be quite confusing because then you're flicking, you know, to the back and then to whatever provision you're looking at. Um, and you have to be aware that there might be additional information in that back piece. So what we thought was if we do a small business specific handbook, that you could bring in some of that practical guidance throughout the document and, and actually unpack some key issues and themes. So. Yeah, and is that 45,000 into a uh, Australian New Zealand standard or will that be an ISO standard as well? So it is an ISO standard, but we have a great bunch of Australian reps um, along with Carlo who are working and leading the international work. So we're getting a lot of our Australian input incorporated there. Again, it will be a decision once we finalise that as to do we further modify it for Australian use and probably at this stage... Um, Aki saying we do need to further modify it otherwise we just won't get that that value hmm. yeah yeah and in fact uh you know segueing into the work that Aki or you know the participation Aki's had in the New South Wales draft code of um practice um in obviously uh, and his team got a lot of consultation on the development of that which did lead to quite a large number of changes apparently or changed it quite considerably um so has Aki been involved in that and providing some of that feedback yeah, we have, and um, <clears throat> I've worked quite closely with Ian and the team, and it's been really great to have that engagement. So, <clears throat> sorry, throat tickle. Um, what what Aki normally does is we work at that national level through Safe Work Australia. So it it is really good when we do get the individual states and territories also engaging mainly so we can ensure that consistency and lessons learned in one jurisdiction flow through to another, um, particularly because New, New South Wales are leading uh, the development of a code in this space. We, we wanted to make sure that we were there, we could input into that process, um, and we also have the majority of our members based um, in New South Wales, so it made sense. But the, the code's looking really good. Um, the feedback that I've provided recently is it, it looks different to what we might expect from a code in a good way. So it's so part of the issue that I've had and Aki's had and our members have had is codes are meant to be these practical resources to explain your duties under the Act and regs. They're not practical and they're not helpful has been the predominant feedback from our small businesses. A lot of them don't even know. <laughs> Um, where codes are, they don't know that they're particularly relevant to them. And we have over 21, 23 different codes at the moment um, on top of, again, the Act and Regs. So it is a really complicated landscape for small businesses. And what this new code that New South Wales is developing is doing is it's actually breaking that traditional mould of, of the format and the look of a code and going into a bit more detail and explanation and actually making it a practical document. So really pleasing to see that. 
Yeah, uh, Ian said that, you know, one of the bits of feedback that they've taken on board is provision of case studies. Like, how does this actually look like in practice? So were you involved with some of that, um, you know, with, through some of your members providing some case studies about how they could do psych health and safety well? Yeah, and still an ongoing process. So um, we've also recommended a, a few additional case studies, particularly around office work. And um, that seems to be an area where all the case studies focus on law firms, for instance. Um, but law okay. firms are quite different to an accounting or an engineering or a professional services, even such as yourselves, um, a small business uh, focused on yeah, delivering a specific service. So we're wanting to develop a few more case studies around that um, and explore some other ones in perhaps health um, or manufacturing, for instance. Um, but the, the case studies are great. The other thing that I've found really pleasing and unique is that they've actually got the inspectors involved in the process. And that's really different to how we would normally go about um, the process of the code, because typically it's constrained to the policy experts within the regulators. So to have them actually bring in the inspectors who are going out, having the one-on-one -on -one conversations with workplaces has given us an opportunity to almost challenge them on the code says X, would you actually do that as an inspector going to a workplace? And we've been able to tease out some really interesting gaps, um, for instance, around competence and training and how we might consider competence and training in this context versus what they might expect. Um, so it's been really, really good to see that engagement and interesting, the discussions that have developed. Yeah, okay. So um, how, how do you think that, you know, uh, we, we talked about how the standard might be more applicable for, you know, larger multinationals and things like the code might be more applicable for small business. Obviously with ISO 45002, uh, which I'm only just becoming aware of now. So this is why I always go to the gen. She always knows what's going on. Um, uh, so that's that's also going to be more applicable for small businesses as well by the sounds of it. So, um, you know, how useful in total are these going to be, do you think, in reducing psychological injuries? You know, is there going to be good uptake? Are companies going to be able to apply the principles that sit behind these standards or codes? Yeah, I... I have my doubts, although I want to be optimistic. Um, like I said, codes traditionally haven't had a good uptake, even guidance materials. So when Safe Work Australia produced the first guide um, in this space on, on psychological safety and health, um, a couple of years ago now, we pushed it out through our network. Safe Work Australia did significant um, social media engagement, community engagement, um, and when we touch base with members last year and, and did a survey, there was still really, really low awareness of the guidance itself. Um, so that's a worry, particularly because guidance um, is typically more accessible and, and more practical and useful. So if there's such low awareness there and we know they're already reluctant to use codes, the question then is, well, well where are they going <laughs> for the information and um, how do we redirect it and how do we build up that conversation? And at the moment, um, it's very much through either website engagement, so they might go directly to the regulator's website or, or more recently to Safe Work Australia, who have been doing a, a really great job through COVID in, in increasing their brand and awareness as a, a place to go for information and through the industry associations and chambers. But um, 
it's yeah it's going to be interesting <laughs> is the nicest way of putting it to, to see how effective um we can get the information out yeah, no, Safe Work Australia is doing a fantastic job. Um, I mean, even the, the guidance material they put out around psychological health and safety at work, what, two, three years ago now, mm-hmm. um, is very practical and able to be applied. Um, and I guess the thing that all three of these things that we're talking about have in, in common, the, stand, the ISO standard, the code of practice, Safe Work um, Australia's guidance material, is that they take a risk management approach, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I often see that workplaces... Uh, the ones that are kind of leading the pack are getting to the point where they're doing risk assessment. Um, I feel like there could be a lot more consultation done and that's definitely been a theme of, of some of our previous podcasts, just don't rely on survey data, actually really get down and understand the issues in, implicitly before you take action. Um, but the other thing I, I see is, you know, in the application of risk controls, um, you know, confusion about, you know, do we use a, a hierarchy? Do we use a hybrid? Is there another way of considering how to actually control identified risks? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I might take a step back um, for a minute to to provide a bit more context. So how I see it is when you talk to these small business owners and when you engage with these SMEs, they're looking at um, their workplace management overall. And when you look at it that way, you've got not only work health safety, but you've got, you know, the HR, IR, so the fair work, privacy legislation, discrimination legislation, workers' comp, uh, and a whole myriad of other laws that they have to be across and compliant with. And so it's already a really confusing space, particularly for a small business owner who might not have a HR or safety team or even person that they can rely on. And, And so it's so challenging to then introduce what is a very foreign concept of psychological Uh, risk management or psychosocial hazards, uh, whatever term we're using, and even talking about mental health, they've gone, oh, another thing, (laughs) another thing I have to be aware of. Um, But we're we're seeing that it's not just a small business thing. I think a lot of uh, larger businesses are quite apprehensive and going, we've got EAP, we're doing it. So, but um, yeah, no, sorry, I I digress. Go back. No, no, we could could talk about this for ages and go off on many different angles. But I, back to your point about the risk control, I think, So part of it is actually knowing, so the awareness, knowing that you have a duty and and that you need to do risk assessment and risk management in this space. And then if you cross that bridge, it's, well, how do we assess it and and control it and where am I going? And part of the confusing thing um, that I've really tried to highlight to regulators is they're all using slightly different models at the moment. And this is why we're really calling for more national consistency So depending on where you are and whether you're talking from a work health safety or even a workers comp point of view, it might be talking about the more traditional primary, secondary, tertiary model. Um, You might hear language uh, around promotion and prevention. um, And and that's confusing as well until you start to unpack it. And then you've got, you know, the, the hierarchy and trying to explain a traditional hierarchy associated with physical hazards into that psychosocial hazard context. Um, and they're just going, what? what is the hierarchy of control to begin with, let alone what does it look like in, in this space? So there's so much foundation work that I think still needs to be done. And also so much in terms of the professionals and the regulators and jurisdictions getting 
to the same point and consistent terminology and definitions. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any advice then regarding, you know, the application of controls or using a hierarchy? Do you have any particular thoughts? Yeah, I tend to stay away from it, which is um, probably That's a little very bit. unlike you, Jen. <laughs> you normally have an opinion. Um, but the, the reason for this is I did a bit of a deep dive into the history of the hierarchy of control. And when you, when you do that and when you look at where it evolved from, which was nuclear, um, it was designed for a very specific purpose and it wasn't built to factor in when hazards can compound with each other, when you can have residual risk, when you can have threshold points. Um, so I personally, and this is very much a personal opinion, just don't think we should be trying to convert something that was made for one purpose into this space. I would prefer that we actually sit down and get all the, the experts and great minds together to come up with, is there a better way of doing it for psychosocial hazards? Um, what's been done internationally, for instance, let's look at that um, in our Australian context. Um, and going back to the New South Wales code, I really like the way that they've um, avoided, I guess, that conversation specifically about the hierarchy and looked to say, you know, we need to eliminate where possible, but if that's not possible, um, or reasonably practical, then you need to minimise the risk as far as reasonably practicable. And then it's leaving it open. But of course, as a small business, you go, well, what does that mean? And what does that look like? Can you just tell me what control I need to use? And I guess if we move towards the hierarchy of control model, we're really worried that businesses will then want a checklist. And that could be um, really detrimental in terms of you can't have a checklist for, for every workplace um, and you need them to actually be taught how to think about these risks and how to talk through what might be appropriate for their context. So, Yeah, uh, I, I totally agree. I, I get that question quite a bit. You know, when we are talking to people about doing a, a risk assessment, a risk management um, process through our, our product, um, they said, oh, they often ask, you know, do you have then a list of controls or a list of things that we can do when we identify a hazard? You know, if you identify high work demands, do you have something? If you've got low autonomy, do you have something? We can give some general things to think about, right? But really, you really need to understand the issue in your context, as you say. Uh, and then often when you understand it well, the, the way to address it actually emerges on its own. Um, I was having a really good conversation with uh, someone from over the ditch, Angelique. I know she listens to this show probably to twice every episode that we, we uh, put out. So shout out to Angelique. But um, she gave us a really good example of, um, she works for a, a local government, right? And local governments are so interesting because they're just so diverse in, type, in terms of the type of work that, that people do. I mean, you can have anyone from a lifeguard to someone working in a park, you can have office workers, there's just a myriad of types of work. Um, but she said there was something that happened in, in, the, in the local council where they decided to uh, consolidate waste collection, um, give everyone three different types of bins, all their, their residents, and then um, uh, charge them an extra $200 a year on their rates for, for that. Uh, and now they're expecting there's going to be a big backlash. And they think that people might even the week when the bins are kind of rolled out to residents, that they're going to have people come in to the front lobby and drop in their bins and, you know, be really abusive at staff. 
Now, apparently what HR's decided to do is to roll out resilience training. So uh, if we think about, I know you don't like the hierarchy, <laughs> but if we think about hierarchy controls, that's like the bottom level, right? That's self-care. If we think about the CDC model or, or not even PPE. Um, and then, so Angelique and I were talking about it. She's like, yeah, why don't we like lock the doors or get a security guard at, at the front or something to prevent, you know, abusive people coming in who are just going to, you know, verbally assault uh, the people, poor people working on the front counter. Like, why should the people on the front front counter be bearing the brunt of the public, uh, you know, criticism because of a decision that's been made at a level far higher than them? So I think that was just a really good example of, you know, understand, you know, what are the foreseeable risks? Don't just go for the easy training or policy option. Actually think about, well, we're really serious about protecting our staff and we know this is a likely uh, thing to occur. What are we doing to actually... Uh, eliminate the the hazard in the first place. So yeah, I think we uh, you can see I, I actually like applying the hierarchy of controls. It might be uh, a crude object, um, and there's there's definitely things that I reckon we can do. Understanding that many hazards have over, psych hazards have overlap and compound, and I think we can uh, apply some pretty cool data strategies to work out you know um, some some pretty cool things around predictive analytics. But I think, I think I think it can work. <laughs> I, I yeah, I'm I'm coming across slightly, um, particularly around occupational violence, um, bullying, and and those types of psychosocial hazards. I think they do align a little better with the more traditional hierarchy because you can look at that substitute, isolate, you know, the physical um, blockade, that kind of thing. It's more when you're talking about role clarity or reward and recognition, those hazards, they're really tricky to, um, to assign to that hierarchy. And, and maybe it's because of my experience in HR and change management that I look at it more <clears throat> through a HR lens and then try to apply the work health safety principles onto the back of it. And, and I think this is the conflict that a lot of workplaces will have. Who's dealing with what, when, and are they talking to each other? So, mm. um, I was just going to talk about, a, a, I guess, a slightly different hierarchy that we talk about in sort of the major hazard world, and that's more of a eliminate, prevent, reduce, and mitigate. Um, so, um, and that's sort of aligned with the bow tie methodology where you've got sort of your top event in the middle, which in this case would be, you know, somebody experiencing psychological distress. So we can identify the hazards that could contribute to that psychological distress. Some of them we can eliminate. Some of them we can prevent impact to the individual. So prevent those hazards from actually leading to distress by reducing exposure or job design and all of those things. But then also on the other side of it, it's about reducing um, the escalation of that distress into illness and then it, if it does get to the point of illness it's about mitigating the severity of that illness um, so I guess that's a probably a less prescriptive mm. hierarchy but I think that it does um, work fairly well um, in that um, psych health and safety sort of context mm. yeah I really like that um and I think I touched on, so I started in oil and gas and I started working on the safe supervisor competency program and safety cases were, were a part of it. And I've actually been tossing around that idea as well, that maybe um, we look at yeah, M MHF's type approach or even a safety case approach and, and just explore 
maybe these tools are, are better in terms of the framework that it sets out for the thinking around these hazards. And, you know, safety cases are designed to not be prescriptive, but also putting it back on onto the, to the owner or the PCBU to look at what are all the risks that are relevant to me. And then you work through methodically to, to control all of them rather than going at the moment, which I think most are doing, okay, I've got my checklist. No, I don't think that hazard's appropriate. This one is. And they're not going out and necessarily consulting with an open mind, contemplating all the hazards that could be relevant. They're trying to fit it into a, a, a term or a box that's already been provided. So I guess that's what I'm worried about, that we're going to get into that trap. Yeah, and certainly that's um, an attractive proposition for small businesses in particular. Give me a checklist and let me work through it mm-hmm. and, and make it easy. Um, and, yeah, that, that means that there's just going to be things missed or um, the yeah, the controls aren't going to be the right kind of controls or they're not going to be targeting the right things. So, um, yeah, I agree that that safety case philosophy, I hope we wouldn't be asking small businesses to develop it. Having having had the misfortune of having to uh, read lots of them, I wouldn't wouldn't impose that on small business owners at all. Um, But, yeah, I think that the philosophy behind that where, you know, you're the one who creates the risk, you need to own it, you need to understand it, and you need to be responsible for actually describing how you're going to, to manage that risk and then following up and doing the things that you say you're going to do. Um, I think that that's a sensible approach in this, um, yeah, in this situation. Hmm. And yeah, and giving them the skill. So one of the other passions I have is around the skills and capabilities. We might talk to that later, but it's building that with the, the business owners and even asking them, you know, when you have conversations with your maybe two or three staff in some cases, what are, what are the things that could cause harm or, what might make you feel stressed if, if we're, you know, not using technical language, but a language that they might relate to. And they'll, they'll go, oh, well, yeah, if a, a violent customer comes in or someone comes in and starts verbally abusing my staff, that's going to be a problem. And then you can work through it, but they might not necessarily think, oh, occupational violence is a hazard for me that I need to control. So it's just how do you translate it and how do you teach them that, that way of thinking um, for them to then work through it themselves. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people, when they think about um, psychosocial hazards, they're predominantly thinking about interpersonal issues mm. and they don't, they don't think beyond that. They don't think about job design um, or, you know, all of, those, all of those other things that we know are also um, psychosocial hazards. Yeah. Although on that, and I'm really curious, I guess, to get your thoughts as well. I, I struggle because we always talk in this space about more about distress and bad stress and work overload, for instance. Um, but it doesn't necessarily touch on the fact that, you know, a lot of people thrive on stress and there is that optimal stress level um, where you do feel good and you do feel like you've achieved something and I personally love having a really high workload Um, and I think that also needs to be emphasized a lot more as we have these discussions and that's something again that the New South Wales code is really looking at that individual factors perspective Um, and we see it all the time and when I was a consultant previously 
um, in healthcare, for instance, um, and with shift work. Some people love shift work. Some people love working um, ridiculous hours and they have their own um, built-in mechanisms to, to ensure that they're not overdoing it. And some of them have really great relationships with their managers and they do all the right things. They sit down, they check. Um, where they're at, will there be extra busy times? And they go through all of it. But they, anyone kind of looking, again, with that checklist perspective might go, oh, that's a hazard, oh, got to fix that. And then they might put a, a control or put a measure in place that's actually detrimental to that person because then they're sitting there twiddling their thumbs going, oh, this downtime's actually really annoying for me and I feel like I'm not doing all that I can do. So... Yeah. I think this is another area that HR and health and safety can work together on really understanding the demands of the role and what the, the ideal candidate would look like for that role. Same with shift work. You know, if you've got someone who's a chronic insomniac or has extreme sleep apnea um, or delayed sleep phase syndrome, like don't put them on night shift. Mm -hmm. um, so, you, you know, I don't think we screen well enough for, for shift workers in a lot of uh, instances. We just go, well, you know, they, they'll adapt, but if they've got an underlying sleep disorder, it's unlikely. Um, and same thing with, with workloads, right? Some people will, like you say, thrive on a, on a high workload. Um, other people, they'd be, I know I'd be burnt out trying to keep up with your workload and <laughs> hectic schedule, Jen. So, um, you know, it's about really understanding the demands of the role and then making sure that the people we recruit for those roles actually, you know, meet that criteria as well. So, mm. Yeah, I think this sort of um, links a little bit back to some of the stuff that um, Richard was talking about the other day and, you know, sort of um, the different levels of um, understanding or ability to understand complexity and um, th those types of capabilities. So actually um, using that as part of your um, screening process to actually decide who's going to be a good fit for this this type of role with this level of um, of, of workload or, you know, needing to switch and swap between different concepts and, and issues and projects and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's no, a good time with that, yeah. Mm. Mm, I'm curious to see how much we'll see fitness for work testing emerge in this area into the future. That's something that I'm keeping an eye on. And interestingly, a lot of our members, we did put the question out to small business owners as well as medium and larger corporates, would you consider um, psychological fitness for work testing uh, for certain roles if there were to be much more of a um, punitive emphasis, I guess, in this space? And, and they said yes, because, you know, it's, just, it's such an unknown and it's such a complex area that anything they can do to try and um, provide a bit more control over their situation uh, and particularly when you're talking about really subjective things in this space. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm a bit worried where that might go. Um, and I haven't heard too much discussion about it um, today, but that's something that, yeah, we'll need to keep an eye on. Uh, yeah, that's um, something that's concerning me as well. And I think that you sort of, um, you're in that grey area there where you're sort of bordering on discriminatory mm hiring and that sort of thing where you know it could be very easy for you just to say no we can't employ anybody who's had a history of depression or anxiety because that's going to be a risk to us um and you know the same with you know people who have 
bipolar or something like that where they're being treated for it and it's it's managed um people on the spectrum you know there's there's all kinds of um really dangerous possibilities um once people start thinking about excluding people on the basis of mental health because we know that um you know everybody's mental health fluctuates um you know we're all somewhere on on a range from you know being awesome to being pretty not great um so yeah it's um yeah an area that I'm concerned about as well. I'm not sure what the what the solution is, but I would imagine that it, it would have to be tied very, very specifically to um, to the position requirements, and there would need to be a high um, benchmark for evidence um, to be able to exclude people from that position for that reason. Yeah, yeah, and tying as you say to the inherent requirements of the role, and and looking at that discrimination legislation and adverse action fair work legislation as well. Um, it, there's been some work done. So Aki, like I said, we've got a pretty broad <laughs> policy scope. Um, and one of my colleagues, Jenny Lambert, works in, in the employment space. And we know um, Comcare, for instance, we were talking to the other day, has been doing some really great research into um, barriers to employment and looking particularly at um, disability or, in this case, mental health conditions. And, and the employer perception of how job ready are they, how employable are they, what are the challenges. And there's still a lot of um, misconceptions around, you know, bipolar and what it looks like and depression and anxiety. And, and there's still that real uncertainty about how do I adapt my workplace um, for them to, to assist, um, but then also what liabilities am I taking on then? Um, so it is a really, uh, yeah, worrying space. Um, but also the fact that they're two different conversations is a bit worrying, that we're having this chat um, in a work health safety silo in a lot of ways and not factoring in all of the other work going on that will have a crossover impact, particularly for employers who have to deal with all of these pieces of legislation in all of these areas. So. Mm. All right. That's been a really interesting conversation. We could probably keep going forever about that. Um, yeah, raising questions and, and sharing opinions and um, trying to solve all of the world's problems. But um, we, while we have it open-ended, we probably don't want our listeners to be stuck here with us for three hours. Um, <laughs> I know, I'm pretty sure Jen's got a hard finish today. I don't think um, she could give us three hours. So. <laughs> I'll come back another time. <laughs> yeah. We'll just hit pause. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your the, the work that you've been doing at the national level outside of ACHI? Yeah, um, so there's quite a few different projects on, which I find it quite exciting. But again, I've got that element of worry about how well these projects are talking to each other and the lessons learned and sharings. Um, one of them is with the Mentally Healthy Workplace Alliance. So... I've been lucky enough to be involved with the Alliance since its inception in 2013, 2014, um, in various roles. And the Alliance is a great initiative um, that we built off the back of the Canadian lessons with, uh, with their standard. And it was very much, we knew if we wanted to do it right here in Australia in terms of 
progressing the conversation about mentally healthy workplaces, we needed to have all of the stakeholders around the table. So that's where um, you have employer representatives, union representatives, you have government um, in the form of the National Mental Health Commission, but also ComCare um, and others. And then you also have that public health side. So Beyond Blue, um, Black Dog, um, and even insurance bringing in super friends. So it, it's a really great forum uh, to share all of those different perspectives uh, as they touch on the workplace and to drive that conversation moving forward. So at the moment, the big project for us is the National Workplace Initiative. And that's been going oh, probably for about four years, I want to say. Um, so we've been really careful to do this thoroughly and with a lot of planning and a lot of evidence behind it. So we did quite a bit of research and um, hired some consultants to really look at the state of play. Did we need some type of national um, project or initiative to drive things like the consistent language? How much would it overlap with, you know, what Safe Work Australia or individual jurisdictions are doing? What would it cover? Would it cover um, just public kind of mental health, um, you know, increasing general understanding about mental health issues and conditions, or would it also cover workplace legislation and responsibilities? And so it has evolved quite a bit. And we're at that really exciting stage where we've almost locked down um, a framework or a blueprint. So we had a whole bunch of experts that have been working for probably a year on which model is potentially the model we want to use. Um, and then tweaking that to, to get a bit of a hybrid. Uh, and we're looking at translating that specifically for small businesses, for sole traders, for the medium, for the large, and then across industries as well and across stakeholders. So um, probably not giving you too much information on what the project actually is and what it delivers, but it is um, a work in progress and we should have some really exciting updates um, in the next few months on that one. So that's um, one of the projects. Probably the other one that I'm really excited about is the VET work. Um, so we've seen this growing interest in developing new um, skill sets, which are kind of um, truncated uh, certification sets, um, particularly for smaller businesses or um, individuals who want to upskill, but they don't necessarily have time to do a whole cert four or diploma. Um, skill sets essentially grab it normally a couple of units and you can do it in a, a much shorter um, time span. And one of the ones we're looking at at the moment is called mental health and organizational disruption. And it's off the back of COVID and it's looking at what, um, what skills do employers really need or particularly do supervisors and managers need and what we've found is there's a really um, low level understanding about anticipating disruption and the consequences of that and particularly the, the mental health and psychological consequences of disruption and how you might manage it as an employer. So that um, skill set and unit, we're trying to just provide the basics, I guess, um, to then look to build up, not just for pandemics, but also, you know, if there's a, a merger or acquisition, that's a significant change um, issue for a lot of workplaces, or it might be a whole bunch of redundancies, or it might be a, a fire. So bushfires wiped out. 
you know, half of the workplace and we need to send everyone home uh, to work from home and then just managing that and managing the transition back to work. So, yeah, as I said, I'm really excited. Um, we're, we're in the public validation stage right now, actually. Um, comments are open for the next couple of days and then we'll be looking to get that out. Okay, that's that sounds really great and um, yeah, like a really um, a really useful skill set to be um, to be offering for people, um, given the the nature of the world and where um, where the workplace seems to be heading. So um, that's good to hear that that stuff is all happening. Um, what about the um, national return to work strategy and and the workers' compensation space? Yeah, so that was um, put on pause uh, last year because of COVID and the impact, um, but we're looking at picking that up again. So that's um, a project being run out of Safe Work Australia um, and something I've been involved in for again a number of years. I find this really exciting because um, there was a lot of background work done on um, the barriers and challenges around uh, rehabilitating people with psychological injury and in particular, um, what this strategy is looked at is not just psychological injury versus physical injury, but they've actually gone and said, what are the, the psychological factors that are behind perhaps a poorer return to work outcome? Um, and these are things like um, fear and avoidance, um, uh, you know, self-efficacy. So... The, the worker's ability uh, or their perceived ability of can I actually go back and do my job? Um, am, I, am I still capable? Do I have the skills and the self-doubt and the, the questioning that comes with that and how it plays out into poorer outcomes? So I, I find this great and exciting because we've not explored those psychological factors as part of um, contributing to poorer return to work. So, so we're really excited to see that piece of work roll out good um i'm excited to see that piece of work roll out as well i'll be really interested to see um what 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 the findings are and sort of what the what the directions are for businesses to look at and i'm sure the insurance industry will really thank you for that too mm -hmm. obviously it's a huge burden on them at the moment the uh, the rapidly increasing amount of psychological injury claims and then the length of time that people are off work Mm, yeah, I could talk for days on, on that topic alone as well. And I've heard with interest some of the comments um, that other, others have made around the workers' comp data. Um, and particularly Ian, again, mainly because that was the last podcast I listened to. <laughs> uh, so it's fresh in my mind. But yeah, the, the workers' comp data has always been a bit controversial because of you know the nature of it. it it's only really capturing those who have gone through the process of making a claim and an accepted claim. And also there's that element of, you know, we've been promoting um, mental health more broadly in the community. We've been promoting access to workers' comp. So how much of it is actual increase in, you know, prevalence and conditions versus just awareness and so all of these issues, um, it'd be great to unpack it. Um, I just don't think we're able to really without going into extensive one-on-one -on -one interviews with each worker and each worker who didn't get an accepted claim. So, Well, you heard it here first. Uh, Jen versus the insurance industry uh, will be coming up soon on a panel uh, show on, on that. 
the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. So now it'd be great to have you on the panel sometime, uh, Jen, um, to to discuss some of these issues. I think it's a big one um, uh, that's that's around at the moment. Um, but, yeah. all the um, controversy <laughs> with, um, <laughs> with um, New South Wales and Victoria and their insurance schemes. So, yeah, I know yeah. a lot of my members are looking on with interest as to how that'll play out and whether there will be an acknowledgement that a shift needs to happen in that space. So, yeah, panel sounds great. Yeah, there you go. Um, all right. Well, one of the things that you alluded to was kind of like this public health um, view of, of mental health and it's, you know, about raising awareness, decreasing stigma and, you know, making uh, or giving people access to things like, you know, counselling or, um, you know, Beyond Blues kind of resources for depression and anxiety. Um, what sort of tensions do you see between what's happening in the public health arena versus, say, the, the workplace arena and psychosocial risk management? Yeah, this is um, a, a challenging area and one I would like more conversations around. What um, I've certainly noticed, and we've been putting this in ACCI submissions on this topic whenever it comes up, is I, we fail, I guess, to have that wider view of the fact that, you know, with, with physical health, um, we had a lot of the work health safety requirements embedded, you know, since the, the 80s, really, well, <laughs> hundreds of years, if you, if you go back to the, the origins of the legislation, and we've had that pretty well established. We then brought in this kind of public health awareness of exercise, nutrition, and that's kind of been complementary. What's happened in the, the mental health and um, psychosocial space is we've had both emerge almost at the same time with very different language, very different um, kind of applications, but we haven't made that necessarily as clear as we can. So probably that, you know, 2012, 13, 14, um, Beyond Blue did get significant funding and we saw increases in, you know, programs like Heads Up um, and this conversation around uh, common mental health conditions like anxiety and depression and the workplace as an appropriate setting to, to have conversations about that and to provide support. And that led to, you know, the fruit box and yoga and everything that everyone talks about. Um, but workplaces, you know, they recognise their, their role as um, wanting to, to help communities and to do what they can to support workers. So they've embraced things like EAPs um, where they can, mainly larger guys, but the small businesses have, also done what they can in terms of providing that support, um, knowing where to send people and, and having, you know, conversations with people like Beyond Blue to, to figure out, can we fit it into a toolbox talk or what's one thing we can do that works for us. Then you have, you know, the psychosocial hazard language or psychological health and safety and, and those discussions starting. And that really ramped up probably... 2015-16 um, so there was that bit of overlap and suddenly workplaces and employers are going you've just told me how to to talk more about anxiety and depression but what's this psychosocial business and how do yeah. they relate because I'm already doing all these things for mental health so I'm I'm right aren't I like I'm, I'm meeting all my requirements and so we've We've kind of complicated it even further and, and the language doesn't help, particularly when we um, have regulators 
using terms like mentally healthy workplaces. So that that's a particular bugbear of yeah. mine that you know when, when you're talking about mentally healthy workplaces that that translates to mental health, you know, community health, how we can support that in the workplace versus my legislative requirements as a PCBU or an employer. And I just don't think we've got it right yet. So so language is really critical on that and I'm really pleased to see behind you <laughs> that you were very clear in you know workplace psychological health and safety well-being management system so very clear terminology and, and that's really what we want to see moving forward so employers can start to differentiate the two so um how how do you think we can better develop the skills and capabilities in this space yeah, I, I think there's a lot of work we need to do. So, um, you know, I'm I'm very lucky, I think, personally, that I got to explore. You know, I started in psych. I, I brought on the safety. I dabbled in HR, workers' comps. So I've, I've seen all of these different elements um, and been able to incorporate it. For your average traditional safety professional or practitioner, they've come from a place of you know physical hazards and that very traditional mindset and we don't have we don't have um you know qualifications or courses that bridge the gap uh we're starting to see like i said a couple of units here and there but the, that's got a long way to go and then you know org sites are great <laughs> but at the same time i don't I don't think they have the skills that we need um and clean sites again they have an element but they don't have the, the package. So that's another conversation I'm really keen to have with experts in this area and, you know, pulling apart what are the desirable skills and capabilities uh, to support businesses. And I, I'm just gobsmacked that we can be looking at regulations in this space when people aren't even remotely trained <laughs> to mm. deal with it. And small businesses, you know, who are they going to hire to help them? Um, so, so that's why it's critical that we get really clear information and guidance on what's the expectation, um, what do I do to meet those duties and, and at the same time build up those skills and capabilities or we're, we're never going to get anywhere. Yeah, so it is a real combination of understanding risk management processes that, you know, how do you go through that hazard identification process? How do you go through the consultation to develop the appropriate controls? But then it's also about, yeah, you need to have some of that HR stuff to understand about job design and, you know, the, the OD piece um, to find the right controls. And you need the org psych aspect that, that feeds into that as well from a subject matter expertise perspective. Um, data and everything. And, yeah. yeah, the data, yeah, data analytics, um, you know, what, what is good quality data? How do we identify a tool that's robust and valid and reliable and all of those things? So, yeah, it is a real, a real mix of, of competencies that's, that's required in that role um, if it's just going to be one role. Otherwise, it's a, um, a big effort to get good collaboration um, between those different disciplines and for a small business. Um, that's not necessarily something that's easy to achieve or, or practicable even. So, um, yep, it's it's certainly a, a challenge for the future, I suppose. Um, 
It sounds like Joelle's going to buy you a coffee soon because that's the project she's working on it at the, the moment. How <laughs> <laughs> do you build competence in, the, in those people that need it? So like you say, even org psychs, they have an uh, understanding of a part of it, but we still need to provide upskilling to that group. Now we need to provide upskilling to line management, senior leaders, health and safety professionals. There's just you know, so many people that need to see the full picture versus just their one little part. Mm. I think um, Bob, Bob Stenhouse mentioned a couple of um, the Canadian universities who are starting to do um, sort of diplomas and certificates in um, in this area to help those those different professionals upskill in the in the psychosocial risk mm. area. So um, even if it's not available in Australia, um, there is some stuff out there that's that's potentially useful. So um, yeah, that no, that's interesting. Um, I know last year the BSB WHS five one two. Diploma unit came on board. I know it because I helped write it, so it's fresh. Um, but that's, you know, the first attempt at, and in this case, it was trying to align the Safe Work Australia guidance material to a unit of competency. But again, it's diploma level, it's one unit trying to capture, you know, everything. Um, and then there are a few other projects that I'm aware of where they are trying to map those capabilities. But, you know, we, we just need to have more people actively engaged in this and, and a range of disciplines and experts involved. So, yeah, definitely. It's a it's a transdisciplinary approach that needs to be taken. Absolutely. So, Jen, what are your parting words of wisdom for professionals who want to work in this field? We've, we've sort of started talking about the upskilling piece. Yeah, I to be honest, I think at this point, if you're a... Um, work health safety professional practitioner, whatever term we're using, the thing I think would be most helpful is probably to look at upskilling in the HR space a little bit more. The reason I say that is because, again, a lot of psychosocial hazards use terms like role clarity, um, <clears throat> job demands, and it, you need a HR appreciation, I think, to understand um, what does that look like? Even things like, you know, position description can be a very easy thing to provide role clarity. But again, how how well businesses review position descriptions, how accurate they are. So yeah, to me, it's it'd be great to get a bit more of the HR fundamentals um, and the HR and safety people working together. Yeah, no, that's very practical advice. Um, and I know someone I was talking to just yesterday, he's got a, a long um, experience in health and safety and has actually gone back to do some studies in HR because she's trying to understand that it's a, it's a different mindset. All right. Well, um, look, that, that's been an awesome conversation, Jen. Um, you didn't disappoint. Um, I'm really glad that we we're finally able to get you on 17 episodes into the podcast, but it was well worth the wait. So thank you so much for just sharing, I guess, your wealth of uh, expertise in this area and your knowledge about what's going on at the national and international level. No, um, I appreciate it. And I've, I've really enjoyed the podcast that I've listened to so far and I've got a backlog to, to catch up on, but great initiative, as I said, really exciting. And hopefully yeah, we'll, we'll have a few panels coming up and, and a few other topics to explore. So. Yeah. And we'll definitely be hitting you up for recommendations on who you think is worthy to follow you on, on the podcast as a guest. Sounds good. 
All right, great. Well, uh, yeah, thanks listeners for, for tuning in. Remember, we do record these uh, sessions that we, we do over Zoom and we publish them on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. So feel free to check that out. For those of you who don't like an hour or however long this, uh, this episode will end up being by the time it's uh, edited uh, will be, then, um, you know, we do on our Flourish DX LinkedIn page, put little two to four minute clips with, with some of the golden nuggets. So please uh, follow that page if you want some of the, uh, the shorter abbreviated version of the long form podcast. Uh, speaking of LinkedIn, Joelle and I are very active on there. So feel free to reach out to us. And you'll find Jen on there as well if you want to find uh, follow her work or the uh, Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry if you want to follow uh, some of the stuff that they put out as well, which is fantastic as a resource. So thanks again, listeners, and we'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.